Welcome along to Panic Attack with Big John, joined by my tag team partner, Doc, and we're going to do another Mega Power cast. Oh, uh, the Mega we, Powers. Oh, about to explode. Oh, yeah, brother. <laughs> we uh, have been looking at this book by Newt Gingrich. And that's going to be the first thing we cover. We may get to talk a little about Vince McMahon retiring. Uh, also, Donald Trump, when and if he's elected for the third time, but second time officially, <laughs> he's going to fire 50,000 deep state bureaucrats. Uh, remember to do the like, share, subscribe thing to this podcast and Follow me on Getter and Twitter at the real underscore Big John. And the book we're talking about, The Blueprint to Winning Elections in 2022, 24, and 26, is called Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future from or by a guy who spent some of his life in Ohio, in Columbia County specifically, Newt Gingrich. And uh, Doc, why don't you tell people what made you want to re read this book? Not just read it, but it was so important. You actually bought me a copy and said, we got to review this and talk about it on the podcast. Well, that's so, right. We we got to do an old-fashioned book club here on this, and what that means is we're going to go through it, and we're just going to read it with everybody. Um, you can get the book um, and press pause and order the book and then press start again and follow along with us. You don't, you're not going to need the book to follow along because we're going to do this old school. You just have to listen and uh, follow along. And uh, so that so that's number one. You don't need the book, but I wanted Big John to have it because Newt Gingrich is one of the greatest political thinkers um, in the country's history, frankly. And as far as conservative political thinkers of our lifetime, I had those two caveats. I, I don't think it gets much bigger. Uh, obviously, I'm talking our we're Gen Xers, so. Um, you know, mid seventies, uh, Rush Limbaugh obviously is up there. He's no longer with us. There's a, a lot of people will say, well, there's Milton Friedman, but he was more libertarian esque, I guess you could say. Uh, but he's up there too. But, you know, I, I own, uh, two, three other books by Newt, um, to save America and real change were books that he wrote 10 years ago. You know, when he ran for president in 2012, he was the intellectual version of Donald Trump. He came in and was absolutely going to uh, be a bull in the China st uh, store in 2012 to the establishment's goals of nominating, coronating Mitt Romney, who never had an original idea or stood for anything original in his life. And... Newt Gingrich came in and almost mounted um, enough. He just didn't have the organization or the money uh, to beat back Romney. And we just weren't ready yet. 
and what you saw in Trump in 2016 <clears throat> was the culmination of what many people had tried. Steve Forbes, um, Newt Gingrich, and others in in cycles past. You know, going back to the mid 90s when the Bush uh, dynasty at a national level, uh, you know, was was reeling until W came in. And even when W came in, we thought he was going to be the outside conservative to, to straighten the system up that we so desperately wanted. And unfortunately, that turned out to be a con job. So why did I pick this book? Why did I buy this book for Big John? Is because this is the culmination of, of a career of one of the more brilliant people in, uh, in, in politics today and one of the sharpest conservative thinkers. This guy knows how to organize. This guy is all about action, action, action. He ran for Congress three times before finally winning in 19... Uh, 78. And he said, you know, I'm not just going to allow the federal house to be this good old boys club. It would, it had, it had been written off that the United States house was always going to be where the Democrats would enjoy power and more than the Democrats really, because there were Republicans that were just happy to go along with the fact that the Democrats were in charge because they had committee assignments. They had some influence here or there. The Democrats were always at 240, 255 seats on average. They were just happy to be included in the dinner invitations, in the cocktail parties. Right. And Gingrich came along and said, no, I've got some ideas. We're here to win elections. We're here to influence people. Uh, we're here to take the country back. We got Ronald Reagan on our flank we're not going to just cede this anymore to anybody and within 14 years he had accomplished what many people said is was the un, was uh, impossible he accomplished the impossible he took control of the house in the gingrich revolution and he did it based on ideas and this is the key difference between what gingrich offers and what the milk toast Republicans offer in Washington ideas Gingrich won on the contract with America and ideas and organizing political thought and organizing political leaders into strike forces. There's a WWF reference for you. Um, <laughs> bonus points to anyone who gets it. He employed people to be change makers. <clears throat> and that's exactly what, we did in 1994 and we held the house until some some bad politics came into play and then we were given a milquetoast republican leadership and we squandered away a generational opportunity and it wasn't because of gingrich or his poor leadership it was because of the forces inside of washington dc and inside of the republican party that stood up to revolutionary, and I say revolutionary, not in a bad way, but in a good way for the Constitution, change in Washington, D.C. So I look at Gingrich's past books. I recognize the fact that he is a true believer 
political thinker, and we need to get into this. We, and, and, and even, and here's, here's the other side of the sale here. Even if you disagree with what we're talking about, you need to hear what the arguments are and sharpen your own uh, points. And let's go into ideological and uh, philosophical battle here because we are at a turning point for the country. And I don't want to just, you know, win an election because the other side really sucks. And I don't want to lose elections because we're afraid of our own shadows. I'm all about bold ideas. Win if you must, okay. Or not win if you must, but let's win. But lose if you must. But let's lose on the battlefield of ideas. And Gingrich isn't afraid of putting forth bold ideas and solutions to America's problems. But they're rooted in the Constitution. So we're going to do an old-fashioned book club here. So kick back and relax. I'll let kick it over to Big John before my voice is not as strong as what it used to be in years past, <clears throat> but I'm going to do my best here. And so I'm going to kick it over to Big John while I take a swig of water, and then we're going to go right into it. <clears throat> All right. So, yeah, what Doc was saying there, you know, the contract with America was a bold idea that hadn't been done before, uh, not since... <laughs> 1776 i'm not not saying uh gingrich and that republican revolution was uh equal to the founding fathers but no other time do i remember uh a party a group of office holders and potential office holders coming up with a plan and literally signing a contract that if you vote for us, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, uh, and, and, and John, only two Republicans didn't sign it, and one of them was Mitt Romney. What? That figures. Because he was <laughs> running for Senate in Massachusetts against Ted Kennedy, and he didn't want to sign it. So there you, I'll just throw that in there. Yeah, carpetbagger Romney. Uh, so if you're ready, uh, how do you want to do this? Do we want to Take a we're gonna hold. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna dive right into it. <clears throat> we'll get as far as we can go. Uh, hopefully, we can at least get through the introduction. But we're just gonna read the book as is. Again, okay. it's defeating big government socialism, saving America's future. Newt Gingrich, and we're trying to, you know, put this out here for a candid audience on both sides of the aisle, but primarily, you know, people who are like-minded folks that want to, you know, discuss this and and. Um, you know, fine tune their own thinking and arm themselves with the facts. So <clears throat> let's just jump right into it. Introduction. This book is about the rise of big government socialism in America and is a guide to winning the arguments around elections, upcoming and beyond. And I just want to fo focus in on that. Winning the arguments around elections. This is a theme that will come into play here. And of course, Big John, the, the rules are you interject if you have something to say. Um, this is about winning elections, but you have to win the argument to win the election. There are too many people in Washington that just want to win the election. These are the consultant class. These are, you know, establishment people. They don't want to screw up. Just give us the election. Give us the reins of power. The real question here is what are you going to do with it? 
And I think for Republicans since 1994, really since maybe 1980, uh, with the Reagan revolution that came in, um, they've won election after, they've won more than they've lost. All right, as hard as it is to sound, they've won more elections than they've lost, but yet here's the country in the shape that it's in. And that's really because we're handing over reins of power to people that just want to win. And they're not really concerned with the argument. So that's a key thing here. Winning the argument around elections is key. Prime Minister Margaret. You win the vote. It's exactly what we were saying. The 2022 and 2024 elections are among the most vital in American history. Down one road has continued decay and decline under big government socialism and obsolete unionized gigantic bureaucracies. Down the other road is a revitalization of the American system of patriotism, hard work, free enterprise, and continuous problem solving. Now, I want to go back to 2012 when we were just three years into our uh, podcasting experience. And I said, Big John, everyone listening, this is a, a, a pivotal election. And you hear this over and over again. But this really is it. If we reelect Barack Obama and empower these radical forces to have control of government unchecked for four more years, this may be a path that we're going to have a really hard time turning around from. We'll win elections. We will come back and we will you know, have our share of victories. But will we really be able to change this trajectory of the country? And looking, despite Trump, despite the Tea Party, <clears throat> despite those successes, I think my thesis back then has proved to be true because we have continued to win, but we haven't, we, we've, we've done better than what we have in the past, primarily because of, of Trump fighting this big government socialism. And that's another key aspect to this. It is not only winning the argument or making the argument, winning the elections, but having the right person to make the case is what I would add. And right now in the Republican party, there may be a couple of people that can make this case, but of those few people that can do it, only one has shown it, it's possible. It, it can be done. You know, only one Republican has won in Midwestern states, which is what you need to do to win the election nationally. And that's Donald Trump. So as we continue to talk about this, as we continue to discuss this argument here, keep in mind not only the argument, not only winning elections, but who can do it mm -hmm. and who's the best option for it. So the book continues here. Robert interjects here. Uh, this is a, a little off, not off topic, but looking down at that last sentence, patriotism, hard work, and free enterprise. When we grew up those, in the 80s, those were backbones of America with Ronald Reagan. Now, patriotism, hard work, and free enterprise have almost become dirty words in America. Well, it's certainly a foreign language. Yeah. And, and, sure. and, and it's a foreign language to the educated, the quote unquote educated. <laughs> the book's smart, but street stupid. Right. All right go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, but you're right. And it's important to bring that up because that is that path that we talked about in 2012. Mm -hmm. that, that we, we turned our back on that. We turned our back on 
patriotism, hard work, and free enterprise. We might think we value those things, but since Obama's reelection and the absence of any clear Republican agenda, besides we're better than the losers that you know continue to make mistakes, save Donald Trump, that, that we haven't gotten back to this ethic. This is this is really what Gingrich is talking about here is a Midwestern Protestant work ethic. Yep. That is a fundamental bedrock of American society. And that doesn't mean that you have to be from the Midwest or you have to be Protestant, which I am not, to appreciate this. That's just what it is. That's, that, that's w- what we were founded on. This hard drive work ethic and this patriotism, this commonality that a lot of people had, but it, it is rooted in that value set. And make no mistake about it. And and we have turned our back, at least for the last two generations, and reaching, unfortunately, too far into the Gen X generation that we come from, um, questioning this, questioning these things that have worked. So that's, you know, Gingrich is getting us back to that. He's getting us back to <clears throat> looking at these important foundational principles and trying to direct us back into this. And that's why this book is important because these are American founding principles, best practices for self-governing democracy with a 240 year plus history. So I'm not gonna shake my head at this. I'm not gonna turn my nose up at it because this guy knows what he's talking about and these principles and values have proven themselves over 200 years. (coughs) Excuse me, okay, so he says, I write this book because I believe that the United States is in deep trouble. If we are complacent, we will cease to be a free nation. We we face both domestic and foreign threats to our survival. This book is designed to enable you, the citizen, to win the argument with your friends, neighbors, relatives, and coworkers. And I want to stop there and just say, this is the key thing, not only to this book and to these arguments, but to our founding documents into legal opinions and Supreme Court opinions and congressional laws and, and executive regulations. These are words and policies that belong to us. They are not, they, just because somebody from Washington writes these things doesn't mean we can't read them and make up our own minds. And we sir as hell don't need the media to tell us what it says. Right. We, can figure, we can figure out what works and what doesn't work. And we will, and we are. And that is what the America First movement is about. There will be disagreements, there will be wins, there will be losses, but at least we understand what is said. We are informed populace, and that's critical to this. No matter what else we talk about, informed electorate, informed populace. Yeah, and I think, or sorry. No, uh, no, just hit it. I think, you know, this is something, when we talk about grassroots politics, you do have to engage with, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. Uh, if you overhear somebody saying something about the Supreme Court outlawed abortion, you got to set them right and say, no, the Supreme Court doesn't make laws. The Supreme Court gave the legislative power to the states because that's in line with the Constitution. And, and there's a million different examples. That's just the most current one. But you know, we've got to engage people 
and average citizens need to practice citizenship and inform their neighbors, hey, man, you don't understand that the government's making us work for them. They're supposed to be working for us. They're you supposed know, to be like, working. Yeah. They're supposed to be working for us, but also at a federal level. It really isn't a question of are you this or are you that. It's is this where we should be talking about this? Does, right. does this particular level of government the appropriate or constitutional place for us to be making these decisions? It might be convenient. It might be what the you know talking heads or the establishment class or people want for their own power and personal reasons. But if you go back to the Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court, it really had very little to do with what abortion is. That question was left to the states, it, it, which is exactly where, why we are here, why this country is here. Uh, it wasn't so we could have a central government to come in and solve all of our problems for it. I mean, for us, it says right in the whole thing to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's that last part, the pursuit of happiness. Some things are left for us to decide beyond government, beyond what people in Washington specifically can say, but what, what government, what, what we can, what government can do for us at the most influential and fundamental level that can reflect the population as best as possible. And Gingrich is trying to get back to this. It says it in the thing, big government socialism. We're not talking about managers of our own lives, consolidators of power, centralization of authority and planning. That is not what this country is about. And it is in, in every instance where those things have been tried, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and havoc has been wrecked on the, the, the people where this has happened. And there are folks that are trying to do it here in this country. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it says here, then, picking up, this book is designed to enable you, the citizens, to win the argument with your friends, neighbors, relatives, and coworkers. The goal is to help encourage Americans to save their own country by understanding what is threatening us, and what we must do to survive as a free, prosperous, and safe nation. The threats at home and abroad are real. The core tenets of big government socialism, wealth redistribution, woke thought policing, and dictatorial government control have become the core tenets of the American Democrat Party. So a question that I would ask here is, why has big government socialism found a home in the Democrat Party? Yeah, that, that's intriguing because really both parties have educated people. Uh, we, brought, we tend to blame the higher, institu higher education institutions as indoctr indoctrination institutions. But why do Democrats pick up on this more than Republicans? When, when we went to college and we were, had socialism preached at us and liberalism preached at us, we're like, hey, you're an idiot. <laughs> that doesn't work anywhere. It, 
but some for some reason your Democrats like AOC and you know Cory Booker or whoever Barack Obama they take that liberalism that big government dictatorshipism and love it fall in love with it. Well, it's clear that it's found a place uh, in our institutions of higher education. But what's remarkable about the whole thing, remarkable about the whole thing, is when you look at the, 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 the Democrat Party is the longest, oldest, and continuous running uh, political party in the world. All right? In the world. Do you understand me? The American Democrat Party has been around longer, so it's the oldest, and it is the most continue and continuously operated. This party was founded upon principles that were briefed in Jeffersonian democracy, a populism of power to the people. There are other examples of presidents. Another one comes to mind, probably the last real Jeffersonian president we've ever had, Grover Cleveland, and he was a Democrat. These are two people that I happen to think a lot of. Grover Cleveland goes unnoticed a lot. But it is amazing how this political party could become home of, as Gingrich says, the core tenets of big government socialism. Wealth redistribution, woke thought policing, and dictatorial government control when it is the oldest, longest, continuous serving political party in the history of the world and in Western Democrat, Western uh, democracy, home to people like Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson who believe nothing close to this. So for me, it becomes how, you know, a key question here. And as we go through this book, beyond, I think Big John brought up one point, and that is academia. Academia found a home in the radicalism of academia found a home in the Democrat Party many years ago. I think we can also point to Woodrow Wilson in the progressive movement, um, started to gain hold. Uh, I think there are some other um, things that we'll get into that aren't as pleasant to talk about, such as the Southern Democrats and their motivation uh, to suppress people that eventually took hold. And this unholy alliance emerged uh, that led to the Roosevelt coalition, which Gingrich will get into later on, uh, that provided a governing platform for the Democrat Party um, for 60, 75 years post-Roosevelt. But it has its roots... But where, where it gets to is is why why did it go why did it go beyond even that as radical as that was into this AOC thing? So we got to move on in the book, but just keep that in mind. The few right. moderates who are left 
are either being coerced to fall in line or pushed out of office by the radical wing, which has taken over. As I detail in this book, the rise of big government socialists is only going to create more problems, divisions, and conflicts in America. The rise of communist China is an existential threat. So he's transitioning here. Many of our elites refuse to even recognize that the threat from Beijing, for many it's because they make so much money off of China and put profit above patriotism. I'll just leave that over there. Our bureaucracies, our bureaucracies refuse to modernize at a rate necessary to compete with China. Our news media is too filled with trivia, gossip, and childish stories to truly educate the country and host a debate about how to succeed in the competition with the Chinese communist dictatorship. And that gets to a bigger point, which is the media has absolutely abdicated all of its responsibility to properly and unbiasedly inform the public of what is really going on in the world and in the country through our elected leaders. Full stop, end of sentence. The media has a large role into why we are in this difficult situation today. On a more immediate and conventional note, Vladimir Putin's ability to focus Russian resources on military power has been increased dramatically by the Biden administration's effort to cut American oil and gas production. This is increasing the value and profit of Russian production and the leverage they get through Western European dependence on Russian natural gas. As we saw with Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the Biden administration's strategy for coping with Russian adventurism is insufficient. At this time of writing, in early March, the Ukrainians are heroically defending themselves against Putin's aggression. Now, I think there's a whole other thing that we can get into here, and this is where some people will diverge from Gingrich. Gingrich still clings to, although a tamed view of it, a, global, a, a globalistic view of America asserting its power and moral right around the world. It's watered down. But with that last sentence, I, I think I would just hedge to say, <clears throat> I think we should be less concerned with what the Ukrainians need to do and, and more concerned about what we as Americans need to do for Americans. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that, but I, I just offer that up as a point to consider as we go through this book. Yes, there are threats on the foreign stage, but um, we need to also be realistic about how we approach those threats and put them in the proper context with how we uh, address them with our domestic concerns. Yeah, I certainly do not think sending billions <laughs> of dollars uh, overseas, sort of, uh, is the answer to America's problem right now. And uh, a stronger president you would never have had Russia invade Ukraine, but continue on. Between the Iranian dictatorship's focus on acquiring nuclear weapons, the North Korean focus on matching nuclear weapons with delivery systems capable of reaching the United States, and the steadily growing worldwide threat of Islamic radical terrorism, the dangers of a cataclysmic 
America crippling event compound. As the foreign clouds continue to darken and grow, the threats to freedom here at home are also expanding. So I would say, just tossing this out there using 9-11, are the real threats known or are they ignored? Because it seems like we've heard this line of thinking before, and I don't want to get too far into this, but I'm just putting this out there to kind of challenge some of this uh, by Gingrich, though. It seems like for decades and decades, we've always talked about these growing threats that we can recognize around the world. But the one threat that actually hit us, the one threat that actually caused, you know, us the, the greatest attack on this country's soil, 9-11, largest single day loss of life of civilians, was a threat that was largely ignored. If you go back and you look at documentaries like the, the Looming Tower and other sorts of uh, journalistic documentation around that time and before, we, we the, the intelligence community was focused on these standard talking points, but ignored some real life threats that came back to hit us. So I, I just, I tossed that out there um, again as another sort of hedge to what I'm sensing here is a little bit of a globalized, you know, United States post-World War II, um, we got to come in and save the whole world and nation build and all this kind of thing, which is something that is present in a lot of Gingrich's conversations and in his thoughts. And it's, not all bad or off. It's just, I think the country needs to and should move beyond that because we're no longer the same. And this is goes back to my point from 2012. We're no longer the same country that we were 50, 60 years ago, 30 years right. ago, really, because we have spent ourselves into oblivion and we have created so much domestic uh, issues between ourselves <clears throat> through various things, policies, mostly on the left-wing side, that's causing so much problem. Well, and something that Newt is going to bring up in a couple, <laughs> uh, chapters from now, uh, you know, you said that our intelligence agencies were focused on the talking points of the past, and then this uh, sucker punch came flying in from radical Islam. Uh, the Later in the book, he talks about bureaucrats that are so entrenched, they tell the department head what to do and how to do it and just say, no, we're not going to change. Yeah. And the department heads are appointed by elect people that are elected by the American citizens. But the bureaucrats don't change because they're protected and they want to keep protecting their jobs. So go ahead and continue. Or whatever your next thought was. Yeah, no, so threats to freedom here at home are also expanding. Now, this next part here, I want everyone to pay close attention to because for me, th this means something, what he's talking about, um, what he's about to be talk about, about the institutions of our government itself here at home. The case has been made that we've got problems abroad. The case has been made that we've got an issue of addressing this socialism that's spreading here and in other places. 
But now he's beginning to hyper-focus on the institutions of government itself and how it works and how it interacts with the people that it is supposed to be governing. As a member of Congress and Speaker of the House, I swore to defend the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Today, there are enemies of freedom abroad seeking our defeat. Tragically, there are also those who would destroy freedom here at home, some deliberately and some out of ignorance. The decay of freedom here at home was impressed upon me during a visit to the Capitol in the fall of 2021. I was there to speak to the Republican Study Committee at its weekly lunch. The Study Committee is the largest organization of conservative Republicans in the House. We had more than 60 members at lunch, including the number two House Republican, Steve Scalise, who chaired the study committee before winning election as Republican whip. After I spoke and took questions, Scalise and Representative Jim Banks, the leader of the study committee and a rising star in the Republican uh, activities, both asked me to join them and walk on to the House floor. I was both flattered and intrigued. I had not been on the House floor since I left Congress in 1999. My wife, Callista, and I were in the visitor's gallery when Pope Francis spoke in 2015, but I felt as a former speaker that I should not get too close, close to the daily business of the House. That was the job of the currently elected members in the leadership. Scalise and Banks explained that they thought it would shake up the Democrats to see me back on the floor working on the Republican victory in 2022. Sounded like fun, and I agreed to join them in venturing into the heart of Nancy Pelosi land. The journey from the room in the visitor center to the floor was a lot more revealing and sobering than I would have expected. The difference in atmosphere between the Senate's wing of the Capitol and the House wing was stunning. It was the opposite of what I experienced as a House member. Traditionally, the 100-member Senate is the more austere and dignified body. After all, its members serve six-year terms, and only one-third of them seek re-election each cycle. The House is much more larger, and each one of the 435 members must run for re-election every two years. It is traditionally more casual, more open, and generally friendlier. I often tell audiences that the best way to imagine the two cultures is that the Senate is a country club and the House is a truck stop. And I mean that with the utmost affection. However, trucks are fun places. <laughs> absolutely, they are. They're my kind of people. However, under the Pelosi dictatorship, the House has become a hostile center of paranoia <clears throat> and negativity. The Senate survived COVID 19 in the riot of January 6, 2021 with a resilience that helped it remain the institution it had become over the previous generations. Senators in both parties still, still talk with each other despite partisan differences. On secondary and smaller issues, Democrats and Republicans work together and often produce bipartisan solutions that pass by unanimous consent or with sizable bipartisan majorities. As I walk through the corridors of the of the three Senate office buildings, members and staff from the Democrat side greeted me. And there was a feeling that we were all in this business of self-government together, even if we disagreed philosophically and in partisan identity. The militant hostility of the left-wing House Democrats has not permitted, per permeated the Senate, 
even though members such as Senator Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were clearly advocates for a more radical, indeed socialist America. I felt that I could walk freely through the Senate office buildings and even in the Senate side of the Capitol. However, as I crossed the Great Rotunda at the center of the Capitol building, I immediately knew I was entering a vastly different environment. On the House side, there was a profound feeling of paranoia, control, harsh partisanship, and rigidity. I had first experienced this new, more closed, more policed house a few months earlier when I went to the Cannon House office building for a meeting with the staff of the Conservative Opportunity Society. This was an activist group of conservative members that I had helped organize 39 years ago. COS, Conservative Opportunity Society, had been uh, the weekly action planning meeting for a dozen or more House Republicans starting in 1983. Its goal was to create a more activist, militant House Republican Party that was willing to fight to be in the majority. At that time, we had been in the minority for 29 years. It was this activist cadre of energetic members who created the issue base and floor debating capability that would grow 11 years later into the first House Republican majority in 40 years. I was shocked when I arrived at the Cannon building and was forced to produce my driver's license to prove who I was. I don't mean this out of conceit or self-importance. As a former speaker, I have never had to ask permission or clearance to enter congressional buildings since I left Congress. The congressional staffer who had volunteered to come get me had to sign me in, indicate what meeting I was going to and where, and get a visitor's badge, which I had to return upon leaving. I learned that all meetings held with whistleblowers now had to occur off the hill because no whistleblower wanted Pelosi's police and staff to know with whom and where they were meeting. When I eventually met the chief of staff, my sense that things had dramatically changed was confirmed. Several veteran Republican staff members told me that they had never seen the level of vicious partisanship that currently exists in the House. Even younger staff members said they were regularly treated as enemies of the state by Democrat members and staff, I would add, or even establishment GOP. This was my first personal experience of the dictatorial, paranoid, ruthlessness control system Pelosi has imposed. When I arrived at the, at the floor of the House of Representatives, Banks and Scalise, weeks later, I had a similar but even more controlled experience. Even though we had already been screened to get into the Capitol building, there was an additional layer of security and control that controlled the House floor. The entrances to the floor had metal detectors exactly like the ones used by the Transportation Security Administration at airports. A certain amount of security would have been understandable after the January 6, 2021 attacks, but that was beyond reason. Pelosi and the Democrats were acting as though Republican members themselves were a threat. I want you to remember that. The people in charge right now in Washington, D.C., and think about everything that we, I just read that Newt is talking about here. All these things that members and distinguished guests have to go through to prove that they are okay to walk in when they don't need to prove it. It's an intimidation tactic. It's a bullying tactic. And what it really is, 
is designed because the Democrats think that we, the Republicans, are the threat. We are the enemies of the state. We are the threat themselves. So I would ask, how can you compromise with a group of people who believe that you are the enemy of the state? How can you reach across the aisle when all that had been there once before uniting us, as difficult as it was in a partisan nature and bare-knuckle politics, has now clearly evaporated when the people in control believe that we are the threat? Yeah, uh, this throws me back to something new that uh, you know, even though he and Bill Clinton disagreed on a lot of things, at the end of the day, they could shake hands and walk away and feel like they had reached an agreement on what was best for America between the two ideological differences. Uh, and that's very, very absent in today's uh, Congress, especially the House. You, you hear this from, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I've learned to like more, from uh, Lauren Boebert, uh, other conservative members of the House that are deemed ultra MAGA. And, you know, people like AOC, you know, go out there and openly accuse uh, people like Senator Ted Cruz of trying to have her murdered on January 6th. And it's like they really or, think. Or just recently, John, when AOC was walking into the Capitol and that conservative activist, Alex Stein, cat called her. And then she melted down and said, why isn't anyone protecting you? Yeah. At, this, at the same time, no one is saying anything about the harassment that several members of the Supreme Court, including the White House, that several members of the Supreme Court are undergoing in the wake of the Dobbs decision or the assassination attempt against a sitting Supreme Court Justice Brent Kavanaugh, who had no, his own they, run-ins with this kind of thing. Right. you got Maxine Waters and AOC and others out there saying, get in their faces, make them uncomfortable. We never say that about them. And, and so what's happening here, though, is nothing is said about that. There isn't the kind of media attention or attention. There isn't a January 6th sort of committee on the attacks against Democratic institutions uh, that occurred in the summer of 2020 or that are, continue to occur today against actual people and assassination. I mean, they just tried stabbing to death the Republican nominee for governor in New York. Uh, Lee, Lee Zeldin, and that, that goes scary. that goes unnoticed. But yet somehow, as to come back to what Gingrich is talking about here, the fortification of our institutions, to the extent that they are being fortified, are only being fortified against one side of the political equation, not against threats to the institution, but against ideological threats. That's what this boils down to. These are ideological threats, threats to their power, the Pelosi power machine. Those are the people that are targeted for metal detectors, show your ID, verify where you're going, tell us who you are. <coughs> there isn't that kind of thing happening 
to the other side. And that, and, and so when someone says to me, it's time to compromise, it's time to reach across the aisle, I have to laugh because when the other side looks at us as they have for part of 20 plus years since we defeated Al Gore in 2000 and probably before that, that everything that we do if we win is illegitimate because I don't know, you know, and, and they want to use 2020 as as the excuse to do what they're doing, ignoring the history, the, the, the founders of, you know, raising doubts of the winners of elections. Um, it is it is incredible. And it's no wonder why we have the, the, the why we have the violence that we're having, the confrontation that we're having, because. It's all one-sided. The other side feels like they can do whatever. They'll get cover. They can be aggressive. And, and, and um, so before we go any further down that road, but just remember that, um, as Gingrich says, um, that we are the enemies of the state. In the, in, the, in the view of Nancy Pelosi and the national <coughs> Democrat machine, we are the enemies of the state. And the we isn't just Republicans. It's anyone who disagrees with them. It could also be Democrats. So, um, continuing on. This was my first personal experience of the dictatorial, paranoid, ruthless control system Pelosi has employed. When I arrived at the floor of the House of Representatives, Banks and Scalise weeks later, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to go down further. Uh, Republican members themselves were a threat. Okay, so picking up. Duly elected members who had been selected by their fellow citizens to lead the country had to obey the petty rules or pay fines or even be physically blocked from entering the House chamber. It was clear the staff was dominant and the members were subordinate. Now, that's another flag yes. for problems. I mean, it, that's a problem in the executive branch when the bureaucrats think that they control the uh, uh, appointed members by the elected executive. When the staff and the legislature starts calling the shots over the elected members, we got a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Gingrich continues. All these – so basically what, you know, I'm – inferring from what Gingrich is saying is the government is broken and the Democrats broke it. This is right. basically that simple. All these control elements distanced the members from the citizens they were supposed to represent. In the 19th century, folks would drop in and hang out in the galleries, drinking and watching the entertainment of house debate. On occasion, libations would be sent to the floor to enable long-talking members to refresh themselves. The atmosphere was collegial, and members were simply elected citizens who did not see themselves as separate from the voters who sent them there. How about that? Do you think these people in Washington see themselves as just merely citizens and not separate from you and I? I don't, uh, care, if you're Republic I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. The higher up that chain you go, you can see it oozed from their statements and their mannerisms. And, and 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 just everything that they do, they are separate from us. Yes, and and that's a problem. 
when that's I arrived, major problem. When I arrived in 1979, the house was still an amazingly open place, as were the Capitol grounds. The idea of building fences, calling out the National Guard, having a huge police force, imposing mask mandates on members, and restricting or eliminating public access would have struck us as a violation of the nature of the American system of freedom and representative self-government. For the 20 years I served in the House, interns could take large groups of visitors from back home through the Capitol with a sense of freedom because it was the people's house. We treasured it. And we defended its openness and its sense of equality between members and citizens. We felt we were representatives and we owed familiarity to those we represented. This was true for Republicans and Democrats alike. We all understood that while we disagreed on matters of policy, we were still there to do the people's work with their consent. The House floor I was visiting under Pelosi was a starkly different place. It is clear she runs a dictatorship based on fear and ruthlessness that have not, we have not seen in any other speakership in American history. She has turned the people's house into Pelosi's house. The Speaker of the House is the second most powerful elected official in Washington after the president. Technically, a speaker who has a one-vote majority could do virtually anything as long as he or she can keep that one vote. Senate majority leaders have much less direct raw power and must work with their 99 colleagues. Under Senate rules, any single member can work on the and cause virtually everything to grind to a halt. The careers of Senators Jesse Helms and Bob Byrd were built in part on this ability to bring everything to a halt until they got what they wanted. Few senators exercise these rights to the fullest because their colleagues could then retaliate by doing the same thing to them and blocking everything they tried to get done. Nonetheless, the power of individual senators within the rules of the Senate are vastly greater than the power of individual members of the House. What has limited speakers in the past from using has been a series of constitutional House rules and precedents that protect both the individual member and the two political parties. I had grown up surrounded by this sense of the rights of free people and the important, almost romantic responsibilities and roles of their elected leaders. I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to an extremely patriotic family. Many of my relatives had fought World War II. I was surrounded by the history of a free people. To the east was Philadelphia with the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. When my relatives would take me there to see where George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and other patriots first declared our independence and then developed the U.S. Constitution to preserve our freedoms, I became enthralled with the sense of historic achievement and the notion that we stood on their shoulders. Their courage, endurance, sacrifice, and brilliance had enabled us to be free, to be Americans. To the south was Gettysburg. It was the battlefield of the largest clash of the Civil War. Gettysburg was three days of bloodletting that ended General Robert E. Lee's deepest penetration to the North and saved the Union. It was also the site of President Abraham Lincoln's address that helped dedicate the First National Military Cemetery. His brief speech, possibly the best short statement of freedom ever delivered, was something we had to memorize in school. For me, it became a living statement of our faith in God's gift of freedom to all people and especially to Americans.
Gettysburg had additional meaning because my father went to Gettysburg College before joining the Army. He had served in World War II and reenlisted to fight in Korea. As an Army brat, I grew up surrounded by men and women who dedicated their lives to defending America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Enemies mattered as much as foreign enemies. In my childhood, there really were Soviet agents operating in the United States, as many as 500 according to some studies. At the heart of our unique freedom were the rule of law and the Constitution. The Constitution converted the great promise of the Declaration of Independence that we are, quote, endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights among them, which were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness into a practical mechanism for securing those rights. That's what the Constitution did. It was clear that the founding fathers in Philadelphia in 1787 wanted a government strong enough to protect us from foreign powers and a constitution that protected us from our own government. <coughs> As I that's a lost today. Well, I that think that's one of the most, I think that's the most important paragraph in the whole introduction, to be honest with you. Right. Go I ahead. wrote a note here. I wrote a note here. Um, it, it is uh, at the root of the Republic at all levels, frankly, what we, what I just read to you in that paragraph. As I studied history and earned a PhD and went on to teach and write it, I was increasingly impressed with the role of a free elected legislature in the protection and implementation of freedom. And that's a key part that I want everyone to focus on. And it's a part that I believe in that fundamentally protects us from a 19 Orwellian style takeover of our government and what separates us from everyone else. It is a legitimate acting and independently elected and robust legislature that debates the laws of the people that they are the, the laws and the policies and the regulations on the people it is this it is the leg, it's specifically my bias is towards the house of representatives the federal senate is not what it used to be but um, not any better but it serves a, a, an important function, uh, watered down, as I suggest. But it is the House of Representatives. It is the role of a free elected legislature in the protection and implementation of freedom. You do not get, if you turn this over, here's the point. If you give too much power to one of the three branches of government, not only in this country under the current system, but historically speaking, it's not a good thing. But it's really a bad thing when the courts and, or, or especially the executive get too much. We need a legislature to pass smart laws written carefully and with our freedoms in mind to protect us from the usurpation of power and of freedom and liberty that naturally occurs from the other branches of government that are either A, unelected, or B, singularly elected with a bunch of nincompoops that run underneath them. Mm. <clears throat> the magic of the Magna Carta 
1215, which brought the king under the law and began to establish the principle of no taxation without the consent of the tax, admittedly in the early days applying only to the nobles, was the base from which our rights increasingly grew and were codified. The truth is, I deeply admired those who were called the Whig historians. These 19th century British scholars and writers saw the previous 600 years as progress toward orderly freedom and liberty for everyone. Lord Acton's dictum that power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely, struck me as a key to understanding limited power. The extraordinary lifelong effort of William Wilberforce to abolish the slave trade and use the power of the Royal Navy to destroy slave trading was a great example of the power of religious impulse turned into civic achievement. William Pitt's Britain standing alone against Napoleon's dictatorship was an amazing foreshadowing of Winston Churchill's Britain's standing alone against Adolf Hitler's evil regime. The lessons of history drove home to me why the last line of the first anthem is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Those earlier generations understood that if you were not brave, you could not remain free. Indeed, the wars they fought proved their willingness to do what it took to create and preserve genuine freedom. For me, history was filled with the lessons of proud free people risking everything for their rights and the future of their children, grandchildren, and country. <coughs> when I came, that's incredible. That's another incredible paragraph. When I came to Congress after losing twice, I felt I was part of that long line of people who had defended freedom and expanded the concept of liberty. This concept of the United States House as a center of freedom was really driven home for me by a visit in by a visit late in the Soviet era under Mikhail Gorbachev's opening of the Soviet Union, known as Perestroika and Glasnost, a group of Soviet reporters and editors were allowed to visit Washington. As a Republican whip, the second-ranking leader in the, when in opposition, I was asked, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I was, asked, <coughs> I was asked to host the Soviet journalists. We met in my office just off the House floor, and since we were not in session, I decided to take them onto the floor of the house, which in the pre-Pelosi era was open to anyone as long as a member had accompanied them. As we talked about how the house worked and its history, it occurred to me that since we were out of session, I could give a couple of the Soviet reporters and editors a unique opportunity. I picked one to stand where the president stands when he gives the State of the Union address and one to sit where the speaker sits. I explained that the speaker and the president of the Senate, the vice president of the executive branch, sat above the president because he was there as their guests and in their building, they were in charge. I explained a division of powers as a central design of the founding fathers to spread power out to avoid dictatorship. This seemed like an especially useful lesson for people just coming out from under the Soviet dictatorship, which, of course, had centralized all power in the Kremlin. That's incredible. When we started to leave the chamber, 
the man who had been sitting in the speaker's chair came down, and he was trembling. I asked him if he was okay. He surprised and humbled me with his answer. He explained he was from Latvia, saying, we Latvians were conquered by the Soviets in 1940, but we never identified with the Russians or the Soviet dictatorship. We were taught over and over that America was the enemy, but we had relatives living in America and we never believed these lies. Now you have allowed me to sit in the center of freedom on the planet. It is an honor I will treasure all of my life. I have never forgotten the in intensity of his emotions and the principle that made him so emotional. Presidents are essentially elected kings out of necessity for national security and practical administration of bureaucracies the White House centralizes power. So it is the legislative branch that is the defender of freedom. Each of its members wields a little power, but none can be all powerful. The Congress represents the bulwark of freedom. This division of roles between the central leader and the elective system reflects hundreds of years of development in Great Britain. There are lessons from the English Civil War and the subsequent Cromwell. They impressed our founding fathers more than a century later. Our founders were determined to protect us from our own government by distributing power, and I would add, preserving rights of self-defense. That's yes. Newt. Back to Newt. It was against this background that I was deeply sobered by venturing into the Pelosi system of centralized control. Police order ordering elected members around and members being treated as potential terrorists, forcing members of Congress to feel subordinate to a central authority. In this way is a complete break with the American tradition of freedom and ordered liberty under the Constitution and the rule of law. Speaker Pelosi's arrogance was captured back in 2010 when the fight over Obamacare, when she told a gathering of state and local officials, we'll have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it. This style of insisting on a yes from members who are ignorant of what they are voting on has become the hallmark of the Pelosi system. Bills with thousands of pages of detail and trillions of dollars in spending are brought forth without hearings or a time for anyone to really understand what's in them. The result is profoundly bad legislation that contains many poison pill items that the public deeply oppose. The Democrat members loyally, loyally vote yes because they are told to, not because they know what they are supporting. And that's why the party is broken, folks. The party has lost all wits about themselves. They've lost all original thought, ability to stand up and speak for their constituents. They do what they're told. And for no other reason, in my view, that requires them for a time to be completely and totally banished from all halls of power and influence at every and all levels within our government. 
They are a poison to our democracy. They are a threat to individual liberties and freedoms. And until the great grassroots of the original Democratic Party can get their control of themselves and their senses about themselves, we got a real problem because we cannot compromise with people who blindly vote away in order to maintain power and look at us as domestic terrorists and enemies of the state. Newt continues, final two paragraphs. Under the Pelosi speakership, the House schedule for meetings is kept purposefully limited, so members do not have the time to get together and organize resistance. As I sat on the floor of this new speaker-defined House, it struck me that our freedoms were being eroded and that the institution the founding fathers had designed to be the closest to the people was now isolated by a willful leader who had contempt for the people and their representatives. She wants her will to be done, not the will of the American people. The visit to the House floor made clear to me how vital it was to renew the American system of self-government. We need strong citizens and limited bureaucracies. Achieving this means defeating the Pelosi dictatorship and the big government socialism it is attempting to impose on all Americans. At the same time, I hope this book will launch a generation of modernization, renewal, and revitalization that will enable us to extend freedom to every American while outstripping all foreign threats. Our nation must be free, safe, prosperous, self-governing America that operates under the rule of law and the Constitution. I hope you will find this book helpful in winning this argument and building a better future for all Americans. What, an introduction. what an introduction, huh, John? That, that spells it all out right there in a few pages what America was meant to be and what it's become under this uh, FDR big government program socialism and even furthermore what it's deteriorated <laughs> into under Pelosi and Biden and this new breed of dictator Democrat socialists. We're getting farther and farther away from freedoms, further from our founding documents that have kept us free. And the Democrats lavish this. This is what they live for. They have, they have been schooled in the classroom and nothing more. They have been schooled in what a, in a universe that is detached from reality. <laughs> now, there are also people who I deeply respect on the Democrat side of the aisle who believe in a, in a form of populism, who believe in the protection of the American worker, who believe in sound fiscal policies, but believe that there's a greater role for government in securing those freedoms than what I would believe in or you would perhaps believe in. But isn't that where the debate should be on this not flat plane of Republicans on the right and Democrats on the left and 
this flat plane where the two shall never intersect more on a vertical circle where the two sides can find some commonality from time to time to make policy, where populists can come together to get the government back in line, where constitutionalists can come together to keep the to to keep us afloat from going off the rails, where true civil rights advocates and social warriors can bring up the plight of the low and the downtrodden so that we all are aware of what's going on with our brothers and sisters in this country and the struggles that they have, and that we couldn't find a way for government to help that at the appropriate level at the, and in the appropriate way. That's the America that big government socialism wants to destroy. And frankly, it's also the America that the corporate elite and the establishment politicians want to ignore. And it is up to us, and this book is a calling. This book should be, really be required reading for all people to sit down and sharpen your intellectual muscle to figure out why this guy's full of it or how we put this into an action plan. Because we need solid debate in this country, and we need all voices heard. Let me tell you something. The people that I have run into over my career in politics, especially folks who work in the criminal um, uh, law, the criminal law area, <clears throat> and the people that they interact with, it isn't so much that they are removed or ignorant or, you know, don't understand the process, it's that they're not being listened to. The people that deal with the most troubled members of our society, they are typically youth. And when you then go in and walk a mile in their shoes, and you go and you interact with these young people, and you interact with these people that have been in trouble with the law, and you actually look inside of their eyes and you listen to them because no one's listening. And you give them a little bit of respect and you allow them to talk to you. You do not hear a cry for pronoun usage. You do not hear a cry for all this racial division. You do not hear a cry for more government or whatever tax this, regulate that. What you see are average men and women who, number one, are scared. They're scared. They're scared to death of the future. So they join a gang, or they begin to take drugs, or they do other kinds of behaviors that are uncommon to a productive life, because no one is listening. Big government socialism takes the connection between the people that are making the decisions and the people that have to live with these decisions and creates a gulf so wide and so detached, filled in only by bureaucrats who have no idea 
what in the hell is going on? No idea what the caseworker or the probation officer is dealing with. No idea what the special education teacher has to see every day with abused kids coming into their classroom and how they're going to teach them to read. This is not compassion and it doesn't work. And until people begin to come in that vertical circle, people of all walks of life, liberals and conservatives, on the issues that matter. And as Clarence Thomas said, finding common ground in what we all have historically believed in, we will continue to be driven up further and further apart from each other. And one side will continue at all costs to wield power and view the other side as the domestic terrorists, as the enemies of the state, and will politically persecute that side, not because they're warranted, but simply because they can. And who will be the victims? It won't be the Steve Bannons or the Donald Trumps or the Roger Stones or the Kevin McCarthy's or the Mitch McConnell's. It's going to be the unnamed and unknown domestic youth in this country that becomes the victim of a system that they've long since abandoned any belief in. A republic cannot last under those circumstances. No, it, it really can't. And it goes back to what Ben Franklin said when <clears throat> leaving Liberty Hall the day they, they finalized the Constitution. I, we gave you a republic if you can keep it. And what are we doing to keep the republic? What are we doing to keep a representative democracy alive? And, and what the Democrats and Pelosi are doing now what Joe Biden is doing now is not keeping a republic alive. It's establishing a socialist uh, dictatorship in a way, and then also enabling staffers and bureaucrats to call more shots than the elected leaders, the leaders elected by the people. Well, that's right. In that, it's also at the culpability of the Republicans in all of this. It, it, it is the, their culpability is their inability to see this disjointedness going on in the country and get away from these ideological beliefs and consultant comfort zones and just win the election without winning the argument. The Democrats aren't winning the argument, and they're not winning elections. But yet they find themselves in immense positions of authority. The Republicans are winning the elections, but they're not winning the arguments. So you tell me what's important here. Is, impo is it important to go out and sign the contracts for millions of dollars for high-priced Washington consultants and lobbyists? Is it important to go out and become friends of the media and of the intelligent class so 
<coughs> excuse me, so-called intelligent class. Mm. The missing thing in this whole entire formula is the argument. It's what the average ordinary American is feeling and dealing with every single day. And there has been one president and one person, I don't even want to call him a politician, that has been able, you know, Gingrich came close. He had an idea. But there's only been one guy to actually put it in, 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 to actually put pen to paper and make it happen. And that was Trump. And unfortunately, he's got a lot of problems around him right now. So whether it's Trump or someone else, the message is what we've been talking about. The message is this introductory chapter in this book by Newt Gingrich, defeating big government socialism and saving America's future amen it's all about the future and if we continue down this road we're not going to have one we're going to be overtaken by, <coughs> by china we're going to lose uh the uh the currency of the united states by printing more and more uh and our this idea that a green new deal which is really a, a restructuring of our economy as much as it is save the planet probably more of a restructuring of our economy and it's never worked in the world <laughs> really what, what we're what we have been under the spell of for the past 100 years has never played out successfully anywhere and it isn't even what the scandinavians and most european countries are trying they're not even about this wokeism, about the central planning. They are about a healthy and robust public uh, benefits package for their people. But if you go much further than that, you'll find that they are very, you know, capitalistic. They are very free reign in uh, corporation, less regulation, and very anti-immigrant. They are not about a planned social economy. This is Marxism and Leninism that has been left to the ash heap of history, in the words of Ronald Reagan, with a bow on it, an academic-sponsored bow. It is a bow wrapped with a pile of excrement. That's mm -hmm. what it is. And as an old saying used to be, you can stick lipstick on a pit bull but you're not going to get rhubarb pie <laughs> and that's exactly what's going on here and people need to wake up this isn't about disrespecting somebody's freedom to live a life that they want to live but what it is is about recognizing what we have and what works and sticking to the script yeah and the script is the constitution the Bill of Rights, and before that, the Declaration of Independence. That's right. That is our script for a better America. For the, the little experiment, the joke, the laughing stock, this will never work. That for 240 plus years, we went from 13 separate colonies to 50 United States 
and took over the world. The, the 20th century, the 1900s, was known as the American century. And I watch uh, Sky News from Australia sometimes. And they're like, this president and this speaker of the house are out of their bloody minds. Yeah. What's going and, on? They say that the world needs the United States to be strong. They don't say that Nancy Pelosi needs to be strong. Joe Biden needs to be strong. They say that America needs to be strong because we absorb a lot of the world's problems because we are so vast, so diverse, and we're so economically powerful. We could keep the world afloat, not to mention be the world policeman, which I sort of disagree with, but we're able to fend off dictators and people like Vladimir Putin, uh, Saddam Hussein, when he tried to take over the Kuwaiti oil fields. Uh, you know, we are able to fend that off. And when Reagan was president, it was what was it called peace through strength. And trust, peace through strength and trust and verify. And we didn't have to go out and fight a lot of big wars. We didn't have to flex our muscle. People just knew it. And, you know, Donald Trump brought back some of that Reagan-esque where North Korea was behaving themselves. Russia was not being as aggressive. China was still being aggressive economically, but there was no imminent threat of an invasion of Taiwan under Trump, you know, you had, for God's sake, world peace under Donald Trump. And people underestimated him, not realizing he was an international businessman. He dealt with foreign governments and foreign leaders while he was in the private sector. And he knew how to project strength and how to negotiate. And these people want to project strength and power over their fellow elected officials and over the American people, but not through, uh, not over our foreign adversaries. So what do you think about that? Well, I got to tell you, the, the next, I mean, it gets back to the point where, we have to look at this ruling class and, and look, at, look at this state of affairs through their prism. And I think that is a little bit of where Gingrich is going in this book, Defeating Big Government Socialism. But a good companion to this conversation and to this book is... Um, uh, the Ruling Class by Angelo Codavella. This is uh, a little manuscript book that was written back in 2010 that is a nice companion to this book because as Gingrich sets up the arguments 
to win the 2022, 2024, and 2026 elections by defeating big government socialism, you have to understand, in my view, at the same time, how this ruling class views all of us. And that's what Angelio Cordovella eloquently talked about 12 years ago in his series of books. Unfortunately, Cordovella passed away recently, I think within the last couple of years. But he was very much of an influencer on Rush Limbaugh and um, other, you know, Republican, you know, folks of that ilk, conservatives of that ilk. So to your question specifically, the folks that rule us, that are part of this ruling class that exists, that Donald Trump is looking to, to destroy because it doesn't, not because he wants to destroy it, not for destroying sake, but because it's out of whack. It doesn't have our best interests in mind. And if you go and you want another companion piece, you just read Trump's 2017 inaugural address. And that'll tell you as clear as day of what his motivation is in all this, that this ruling class has profited in the last 25 years at such a level while the rest of us have had a hard time buying homes, securing jobs, paying back their student loans, paying for a gallon of gas, finding stuff available on the shelves that we want to, that we want to buy. But yet we're lured into a false sense of um, security because we do have good paying jobs and we have, you know, some security by a large portion of the population. But there's a significant portion of the population that's been silenced because they're on the hook of the government dole. They're getting a benefit. They're getting this. They're getting that. They're being taken care of enough to go away and be quiet. And that's how the ruling class looks at us. They want our vote. They don't want our opinion. And I think at some point in time, we got to start, you know, two plus two, if you want to get to the nut of it, two plus two has always to equal four. And when they tell us two plus two equals five or seven or something else, as they're doing right now, when they're telling us, well, unemployment's so low, but yet everything else is collapsing, but things are fine. When they're telling us this guy in the White House right now is okay, but yet he keeps on telling people he's got cancer. He doesn't know who Kamala Harris is. He's shaking hands of people in thin air, invisible people. We all know. And the list goes on and on. When two well, plus can... two no longer equals four, sure. we've, got a pro- we've got a problem. And, we, and when people, t- this is George Orwell stuff. So you set it up beautifully. I kind of filibustered a little bit. And it does kind of get us into that transition if there's time uh, into this idea that Trump wants to eliminate 50,000 people in the bureaucracy. But I just want to say that the next chapter that we'll do on this book is officially chapter one, big government socialism isn't working and it can't. And, but we're being told that it has to, it is this fanatical belief 
that focuses on process rather than achievement. And so Gingrich starts to go into that world and others in chapter one. Yeah. Do you want to take a, a commercial break and come back and talk about <laughs> 50,000 bureaucrats and why that's a good idea? I'm all for a commercial break, brother. All right. Let's do that. Come right back. Do another half hour or so. Do we, do we need to hear from the eight ball tavern? <laughs> uh, I've got some commercials queued, but do you want to, can you play? No, it's a, okay. it's, it's an old joke for our longer listeners that wouldn't understand. Phil Dameron's old-fashioned hair tonic and, and uh, the eight-ball tab. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. That tax the rich moment was brought to you by Amazon and China National Patrol. This is just a mug that says liberals are bad. And she's listening. And she's back. Well, again, we're dealing with a new product, Freedom Water. Now, this is just a jug of water for those who love freedom. Good old-fashioned American H2O, Citadel, and Berkshire Hathaway. January 6th, commemorative Patriot Pledgers. Now, you use the promo code election store. This podcast is also a collaboration with Netflix Podcast Studio, HBO, and Hulu. Now, this is Second Amendment computer paper here. It's just a blank sheet of paper for those out there that love the Second Amendment. Farm insurance in the United States. This is a Patriot bill, folks. As you know, the Civil War is about to happen. You're going to want a good night's sleep first. And reasons why you should get boosted. Brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> 10 reasons why the economy is crashing is actually brought to you by gold bars now this is an actual gold bar that you can buy with the promo code patriot let them know we sent you but you know this really is an equity inclusion mercedes-benz now this is a top of the line vehicle handles curves like no other in its class now i recommend you get on this because as you know the american dollar will be as good as dust in less than a week you buy two cars this holiday season they will throw in your pronouns on the license plate now, that left-wing cringe level was brought to you by America First Dirt. Now, this is just good old-fashioned American dirt. Oh, cringe! Uh, anyways, that right-wing cringe moment is brought to you by Soros Fund Management. Now, this is the real deal dirt here. You're not going to find this kind of dirt in hell holes like Venezuela, Planned Parenthood. Mothers against prosecution reform, and that is why we need to raise the minimum wage. Now, let me tell you about Apple Worldwide. They are opening factories around the world. If you want to stand up and say, no, I will not let America be turned into Venezuela by the end of this calendar month, you're going to want this can of 0.001% of those profits will be going to help marginalized lenders. 0.001% of the profits from bunker vitamins go to supporting troops. Oh my God, we've got 100 days in the Democratic Party. I just want to say that Joe Biden is a great, sharp, cognizant president. He's the GOAT. And get your vaccine. Now, this is the Patriot Blind Cave with a visually impaired Patriot. Just because you can't see doesn't mean you have to be blind. The onslaught the Biden administration is waging on your family. He's promo code, let's go, Brandon. I personally have the mind that bunker ties should not be associating with the Patriot Hour. As some of you may have heard, Bunker Ties has parted ways with us after a little bit of heat on Twitter. And I just want to say that Bunker Ties does not support freedom of speech. I recommend anyone watching at home burn their Bunker Ties immediately. But this is no longer a tie for people who love America. Maybe you should just contact their employees. Patriot Water has, in fact, dropped us as a sponsor. And I recommend everyone at home burn their Patriot Water effective immediately. All right, let's do a local fair trade organic coffee review brought to you by McDonald's. 
commercial interlude of uh, <laughs> a satire of internet content creators and their sponsors. So uh, it was, I first saw this, uh, well, it was actually on uh, Tim Pool's Tim cast that Trump wants to fire 50,000 deep state bureaucrats when he is elected in 2024 and takes office in 2025. Uh, this is intriguing. And I think the Daily Mail and other outlets wanted this to be a scare tactic for you or for uh, Americans, people. You, I meant all of us, not just Doc. Uh, hmm. But really, this is a, more of a rallying cry, uh, as Newt will get into later on in his book. But the headline says Trump would fire tens of thousands of civil servants and gut the government to sort his agenda if he runs and wins in 2024. Where do you see this at, John? Uh, this is on dailymail.co.uk. So if you uh, Google search uh, Daily Mail Trump fire 50,000, it should come up. Okay, because I've been having a hard time finding it, and there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Daily Mail, Trump fires 50,000. 50, oh, okay. Was this, uh, well, I, I, I guess I don't see it. Wow, I'm getting, I'm getting shadow banned here. Uh-oh. I actually use Bing search, not Google, but. I got Daily Mail, Trump fires 50,000. And the first hit I get is uh, uh, Trump is attacking the National Archives. <laughs> uh, so go ahead. Don't, don't, don't let me stop you. I'll find it. Okay. So the, the bullet points at the top of the article go like this. Trump plans to purge. Uh, let me see here. It was uh, about a week ago, maybe less. Let me see if it says here. Hang on. Go further down. It was uh, from July 22nd. So yesterday. Morgan Phillips, political reporter, DailyMail.com. All right. That'll do it. Go ahead. Okay. So the first bullet point, Trump would, Trump has plans to purge the so-called deep state, what any president has done before if he runs and wins the presidency in 2024. 
as many as 50,000 government workers could be on the chopping block. Uh, he would clean house of mid-level staffers at the Pentagon, Justice Department, State Department, and beyond to bring in America First candidates. Well, stop so, right there. Okay. That, okay. I got it now. And it's amazing that you have to get that kind of detail to get this. But I'm here to tell you, that's it. That third bullet point. I don't care what the number is, right? I don't care if it's 50,000, 20,000. 100,000. The problem in our government right now is in the Pentagon, the Justice Department, and probably more than any other, the State Department. So forget about the educate. So all so here's what all you people out there that are on the right, forget about the Education Department, forget about whatever EPA, forget about all that other stuff. It is the State Department, it is the Pentagon, Department, the Justice Department, and the State Department. That is who set up the Russia collusion phony hoax. That is who sabotaged Trump's phone call with Zelensky, who's proved to be a useful idiot, which led to his second impeachment. <laughs> And that is who has been fundamentally against Donald Trump since the minute he went down the escalator in January or in uh, July of 2015. So, yeah. Since when does the FBI come up with a plan B to get rid of a president or a candidate should they be elected president? That is unheard of. And it, it comes from these mid-level bureaucrats. Right. These are the people who, and so everyone understands what we're talking about. These aren't the paper pushers or the people that answer the phones or the interns or the, the newbies. And these aren't the, the political appointees, right? The people that the president is entitled to appoint uh, because he wins office, some of which are uh, confirmed by the Senate that come in to carry out the new administration's policies, whoever that administration happens to be. These are people who oftentimes have hung out for a career, 10, 15, 30 years that don't move up, don't move over, but just stay put. And that is red flag territory. It's like we talked about on your show with Anthony Fauci the other day, John. Why is this guy 50-year career in one place and never moved up or never moved over or never moved out? When you see something like that, that's a red flag. That's not just a what is this or a yellow flag. That's a red flag because these are the people that have made their money and made their lot into having their own little turf and any time a new administration comes in, they push back. This is the same at the local level, in the state level, as it is in the federal level. It happens everywhere. This is the, the consequence of an of a entrenched bureaucracy at whatever level we're talking about. Yeah, these people, their livelihood depends on 
keeping us kind of at a state of war, at a state of mistrust. Uh, and they have to do it to justify keeping their job, keeping their multi-billion dollar budgets every year and things like that. Well, what's the rest of this article say? Because, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm all in with all of it. But I can tell you that the problem in this government, and it doesn't matter if it's Trump or anyone else, it was a problem for Obama, to be perfectly honest with you, because Obama in 2008 came in here saying fundamentally the same things Trump was saying. He was going to be an outsider. He was going to come in. He was going to clean this thing up. He was going to get out of these foreign entanglements. He was going to do all that. And the next thing you know, the guy rolled over. Why did he roll over? The problem is the Defense Department, the Justice Department, and more than anything, the State Department. These mid-level bureaucrats that run the show, that gum things up, that leak information, that do all sorts of things if they feel like they're not being listened to or that their lot in life is at stake. Right. The next uh, bullet point is up. Uh, the, the order would reclassify tens of thousands of civil servants who are deemed to have some influence over policy as Schedule F employees. This would strip them of their employment protections and make them political appointees. Now, the danger uh, with that is, now, we 120 years ago, 40 years ago, we went through a whole bunch of shit with this. Sorry. Um, right. The danger with this is, is that you would have too much political turnover, too much to the victor goes to spoils. And that could become a problem, too, uh, definitely. Uh, the former president, if elected again... Would For a move, third time. Yeah, right. <laughs> would move with a plan being drawn up to drain the swamp and cut tens of thousands of civil servants that are typically apolitical roles. He would clean house of mid-level staffers, and this repeats at the Pentagon, Justice Department, State, State Department, and beyond, and bring in thoroughly vetted candidates who were found to be more closely aligned with his America first agenda. Now that's who the government and the bureaucracy is supposed to be working for is America, specifically the American people through our elected representatives. And sometimes you find they tell the elected representatives, no, you can't do that. Or if you're going to do that, you have to go, go through uh, tons of paperwork and bureaucracy and red tape to get this and that done. So, well, well the risk there, uh, you know, if you, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And there clearly is problems, you know, in these areas that we've talked about. But, um, I, I guess I guess I would say, you know, to this whole point of, I think it was the last, uh, the last line here, to put people committed, aligned with his America, America First agenda. 
That's what hamstrung Trump in the first term, is that he won, and I'm more convinced of it than ever, that nobody ever thought he was going to win. And they were ill-prepared to take office and govern and got off on the wrong foot uh, because they were trying too much to placate the establishment Republicans who were never for Trump to begin with. They were just looking for a job. And McConnell, who would uh, not approve even though we had the majority in some of these cases, you know, some of these appointees, you know, things would drag on and on. So Trump is right. Uh, it's something that Steve Bannon has called for, that we have thousands of trained people ready to go on day one to just come into these agencies and take over. Trump is adding to that by saying, not only are we going to get our people in there, uh, we're going to get rid of people by reclassifying them so I can fire them um, and replace them. That's, that's pretty radical. And it really is why uh, you're starting to see what effectively is the third impeachment of Donald Trump uh, roll out on this January 6th committee, because everyone knows that the jig is up with Biden. Um, This is not the man that can even get through four years, let alone, however long he lasts and we wish him well and we're praying for him because we don't want anybody to have problems with COVID. But right. the, the, the fact of the matter is this guy's not well, he's being propped up by some people that are supposedly has his best interests in mind that have their own interests in mind, namely his wife. And it's a real sad situation that we have here and, and it's catastrophic for the country and if this continues, Donald Trump's going to win walking away, and oh, these yeah. people and these people know it, and um, they they so this is why they're trying to decapitate him politically speaking before all this happens because if he comes in again, they're not going to make the same mistake. They're going to be prepared, and it'll be it, it'll it'll be a brawl, no doubt. Yeah, this will be the biggest house cleaning in uh, our lifetime, for sure, probably in American government history. Uh, You know, typically a president replaces about 4,000 political appointees to align agencies with their agenda. But below that is a mass of federal workers who have strong employment protections and typically continue their role from one administration to the next. Uh, in that book we're looking at, Newt talked about uh, when Bush, W. Bush, brought in uh, Brailler to the Department of Health and Human Services, which has a larger, uh, what do you call it, budget than the Defense Department. And Brailler wanted to eliminate things, wanted to make the department more uh, 21st century technologically, you know, streamline things. And the bureaucrats, when he got back to his office, said, wait a minute, you just broke a bunch of rules. You can't do this and that. And he spent his first day on the job being told by the council for the Department of 
Health and Human Services what he could not do as the leader of that department because he wanted to make too many changes. And another thing Newt brings up, the Pentagon. In 1944, the Pentagon was set up with 27,000 employees. And this was in the days of typewriters. And now we're in the days of iPads, smartphones. Why does the Pentagon still have 27,000 employees? Well, they constantly find ways to justify their job. You know, this guy has, guy or girl has an office. They need an assistant. They need a secretary. The assistant needs four or five staff and a secretary. Uh, And it goes on and on. And you just have all these people who work and give reports to Congress to justify continually having a job in government. And it keeps us at a constant state of war. I mean, since the end of World War II, have we stopped being at war? No, we've been in a war somewhere all all around the world. Well, hey, what's more than that? uh, And that's a hell of a point because it's true. um, They offed Kennedy because he didn't want to, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to go to war over Cuba with the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, And, uh, and when, when he was assassinated, while his body was lying in the rotunda of the Capitol, Andrew Johnson, or um, Lyndon Johnson Johnson signed an executive order overturning a Kennedy executive order that essentially kept us out of Vietnam. And so that was done within 48 hours while the dead president was lying in state in the Capitol. So, you know, you tell me what you want to, you know, think about things there. But, um, yeah, we've had this constant. And, but, but here's the other thing. We got out of Afghanistan last year, and it was a horrible debacle. And Biden's popularity, that's what started the decline of Biden's approval rating, the, the, the severe decline. You could look it up. You could see it. That debacle in Afghanistan. So he withdrawed. Interestingly enough, the amount of money that we have spent in Ukraine annualized out equals and may even surpass what we're spending in Afghanistan or what we were spending in Afghanistan. So these people needed another lifeline and they got it. And that's what Ukraine is looking like. So it's constant wars. It's getting at presidents who don't want to get us in these wars or getting at presidents who get us out of these wars. And it's, and it's finding another lifeline. When one global controversy comes to an end, then there's another one ready to go. And when is the big global controversy with let's just say china that's scary that you know people and 
the mid-level of the intelligence community, these generals that become uh, politically active to keep their their jobs, uh, they have to do something to keep their position going. Well, and keep- that's why we need some of these mid-level bureaucrats uh, that are causing us problems because uh, you can't tell me that the president has control over this anymore. Uh, and I don't care who the president is. I don't care if it's this, you know, guy we got in there now that has a hard time, you know, shaking hands with live people or knowing where to go or Trump who had an issue with making irresponsible and <clears throat> cringeworthy tweets or Obama, who didn't show up to work until noon, or George Bush, who couldn't find himself out of a paper sack, or Clinton, who <laughs> obviously we know what his problems were. Yeah. I mean, there there have been, uh, you know, doesn't matter who the president is, they're not calling the shots anymore, and um, that's a problem. Yeah, the the. Bureaucracy, the, the deep state, that's a better way of putting it, loves these guys that get in there and can't do the job, that can't think straight uh, for whatever reason. You know, Obama didn't have enough experience in government, but he got in there on a tidal wave of momentum. Biden got in there because. negative media coverage of Donald Trump and mean tweets and an abrasive personality. And conveniently Um, placed uh, drop boxes full of ballot harvested uh, votes. Yeah, go check out 2,000 Mules by Dinesh D'Souza. Um, All these things, you know, have actually, I think Biden has done more to expose the deep state than Trump because everyone can clearly see he's not running the country. There are people at lower levels making decisions uh, of where we go on foreign policy, on domestic policies, uh, and all of these things that a president is supposed to come in, be a leader. He's supposed to appoint qualified vetted people to lead these agencies and he show me one person in his cabinet that is qualified well there was a report that came out the other day by somebody uh on uh, the internet uh that documented that uh, was it through american greatness or something uh, 60% of Biden's appointees have zero real life experience or some kind of number. Like, I, I wish I had this handy. Uh, well, he has zero real life experience for crying out well, loud. Well, I mean, yeah, he's at the top of the list because, you know, he hasn't done anything real his entire life. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you, it's the same dynamic that you had under Obama with a bunch of academics and, you know, corporate elites uh that have done very little in their life uh, or nothing at all in the real world um i think you know bob dole summed it up when he was running in 1996 against the clinton people that uh 
you know, the, we're governed by a group of elites that never grew up, never sacrificed, never did anything real in their lives, but they want to sit here, paraphrasing now, and tell us, you know, how it is we should do stuff. Right. And that's kind of, I mean, you take a look at Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> and, I, and I got no problem with, you know, he's taken a lot of flack over taking maternity leave and that kind of thing. I, I could care less about that uh, or how he lives his life. But here's a guy that's done nothing uh, outside, publicly speaking. I mean, he's obviously he's a military veteran, so you respect that. But what does he know about transportation? <laughs> now he's in charge of the whole thing, and we got problems from top to bottom. Uh, I mean, you've got other folks who are in charge of other agencies that are just completely, you know, like what, 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 what does John Kerry know about climate change? You know, the guy flies up in a private jet all over the country, over the world. So, right. you know, whatever. So, well, yeah, you know, was, yeah. Speaking of Pete Buttigieg and lack of experience in life, this guy uh, was on a video the other day on uh, a new website. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, he's setting up the Department of Transportation. And he's saying that, you know, through infrastructure, uh, they're going to end, you know, racist highways. And uh, our, our partners around the world need to lower their carbon footprint as well to make Americans safe from severe weather. I mean, does he really think the government can control the weather through the infrastructure? But I saw the words come out of his mouth. You know, here it is. Uh, Yahoo Finance, a survey of the employment history of 68 top officials in the Biden administration. And to your point, John, starting with the president himself, shows most of the nation's senior executive branch policymakers have zero experience in the private sector. Uh, This was an analysis done by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity explains why Biden's policies on the economy have been such a failure. Almost none of the key policymakers know anything about business, commerce, or finance. Uh, They found in the study uh, median years of business experience is zero. 62% of his appointees dealing with economic policy, regulation, commerce, energy, and finance have no practical experience in the private sector. And the vast majority of the Biden economic commerce team consists of professional politicians, lawyers, community organizers, academics, lobbyists, and government employees. That sums it up. And so that's why things are the way they are. (laughs) You know, we need a, a turnover, uh, at least in the short run. Now there, there are, term drawbacks to every four years uh, the bureaucracy or the deep state changes but ones that are qualified to lead the United States may just keep their jobs and not be every four years and this is what we're talking about with people that have no qualifications no skill set you listen to, you know, Kamala Harris, who's 
relatively coherent compared to Biden, but she mm -hmm. talks in circles and says nothing. You know, the press secretary goes out there and if she can't read the answer out of a book, she says, we're not going to talk about that from this podium uh, and things yeah. like that. Uh, or she just goes around the question and doesn't really answer it. Uh, but, you know, these there's another level to this. These people tick a box. You know, Biden said, I'm going to appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Now, I looked at his top three candidates and the one he appointed was the least qualified of the top three black women. I don't care if she's a black woman or a green woman or a purple woman. Is she qualified? Is she constitutional? Does she have appellate court experience? Does she have judicial experience? And the answer is no. And all but she ticks a box. She's a black woman. The press secretary is a black lesbian woman that ticks two boxes. Pete is uh, an openly gay man, good for Pete Buttigieg, but he's not qualified for his job, but he ticks a box. Oh, we need a, we need a gay guy. We need a, a woman. We need a black guy. We need a black woman. You know, uh, the things that, you know, Clinton and, and Obama were famous for hire people that, you know, tick the box that say, oh, look, I appointed the first black woman to this or the first gay person to this. Trump had gay people uh, stand on stage at the Republican convention and got a right. thunder. The guy got a thunderous applause. Yeah, uh, Peter Thiel and Richard Grinnell, name, name a couple. And he gave them positions in government, but he didn't go out and advertise. Hey, look, I'm appointing gay guys. He just did it, and they were qualified. That's the yeah. key word. Qualify. Quali qualify. Yeah, there is a lot of box checking and there there is a lot of I, I would argue okay, so with Buttigieg, where I would come in to say it really wasn't ever a, a question of qualifications with him. It was he got out of the race <laughs> right when he was supposed to uh and was owed a favor. So, the, you know, the, the qualification, that's a political thing. You know, you know, was he qualified to be Secretary of Transportation? You know, his background as a military service person. I'm not exactly sure what he did, but he wore the uniform, so God bless him. And uh, uh, mayor of, uh, we're, we're, you know, Jackass, Indiana. Okay, I don't remember the name of the place. South, South Bend. Bend. South Bend, Okay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> South Bend, it's basically a village. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so you know, it, well, it's like, what did he do there? Last I heard, he had a lot of problems uh, with police, and he just, you know, whatever. So yeah, I but that was more of a political thing. with the Supreme Court lady. I mean, it's clear. I mean, Biden admitted, I'm going to nominate somebody who's a black woman. I mean, he said that, so I guess he is entitled to say that he upheld a campaign promise. Um, he did say that. And I would argue, though, with her, it's less of an issue of qualifications than it is her judicial temperament. 
Uh, I think she's qualified, but I don't think she is fit for the Supreme Court based off uh, for some of her decisions, which I think are are wrong. Now, those are just a couple of examples, but largely speaking, I think your point is accurate that all these people really care about is, you know, am I able to say that I put somebody in office that fit a certain criteria? I feel sorry for the press lady. Uh, I really do. I mean, she's a true believer, so she has to take the, the stuff. But she's clearly... I, I don't want to know. I, I don't. I personally don't want to say qualified or not qualified. But she's underprepared. Like she's not up for this. You know this task. I mean, and that has nothing to do with her race or her gender or anything else. I just hear. You know, when she says it doesn't matter <laughs> where the president contracted COVID. I mean, that's clearly someone who doesn't know. Right. She doesn't know where he got COVID. Uh, Or she's just lying. And she does know that he got it overseas, violating his own COVID policies by not touching other people. Which we all saw on camera. So, I mean, I don't know what it is. I just know that the administration screwed up and they are concerned more with appearances than they are with substance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It is what it is. I wonder how much Joe Biden runs runs behind the scenes. How much sway does she have? Because she's clearly the brain of Joe Biden. Well, somebody's got to be giving him something. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, um, but somebody's got to be giving this guy something to keep him functional for certain periods of time. Because anybody that says, repeat the line in the quote, (laughs) I mean, what what should be on every t-shirt at every Republican rally, end of quote, repeat the line, uh, ultra MAGA, you know, those kinds of things. Um, just shaking hands of thin air, uh, not knowing where he's at, telling people he has cancer. Uh, I mean, this guy is a train wreck. And there's, it's clear he's not, you know, he's not doing a whole lot. So, like, who then would be close enough to him to be able to pull this off without it being – a big spectacle and you know the only answer you can come up with is his wife that this lady i mean she's not a medical doctor so don't let the title fool you but somebody has given her something where she's able to give biden to keep him coherent um you know she's able to this is a west wing kind of thing uh where the the wife who was a medical doctor was actually under the table prescribing Bartlett, this um, MS depressant or whatever he had. And um, of course he had a couple episodes and it caused some major problems. And you just have to wonder, you know, 
is 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 this why Biden takes four days off every week and goes to Delaware? Oh, it's, it, yeah, <laughs> that's sad. Yeah, he can't work. I mean, Trump was up at two a.m. tweeting, you know, to our chagrin sometimes, but. He, you know, the guy hardly slept. He he lived off Big Macs, and he Coca-Cola. he did a better job. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, Biden, like we've said, was supposed to return us to normalcy. He hasn't done that. You know, obviously, people that are at a much lower level are making decisions that are causing us many problems, inflation and supply chain supply chain shortages just two of them yeah. i've never gone into stores doc and seen the shelves as bare not completely but just big empty blocks and people are like yeah we just can't get the stuff in uh, well you know and- what i've noticed it hasn't been so much the shelves at stores though i have noticed some of that what I've noticed more than anything is the inability of businesses to keep themselves properly staffed. That too. That too. I mean, just this morning, I uh, ordered breakfast at uh, a chain restaurant and did the curbside pickup. And I notified them that I was there and I waited 15 minutes and then went inside and got my, my stuff. And even then I had to wait a couple minutes and I said, are you guys short staffed? And she's like, yeah, my, my person that usually works the front isn't here today. And uh, that's, that is a problem. We back to what we were talking about earlier, we learned to live off the government for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I think some of us lost our work ethic and lost our, uh, idea that we have to get up and go into work yeah there's no need to right now you've got uh you know unemployment uh, no you've got you've got no you've got no check medicaid right now going on right uh you you probably are skimming some kind of unemployment uh and uh they haven't given out the free money in a while but that was part of it So, I mean, at this point, you know, even if you are on Medicaid and they end this public health emergency, you're, you're more than likely going to find a home somewhere uh, in a social program. So why go back to work? Right. They taught us to live off the government for a year and a half. But I've seen something else strange on the streets, literally. I'm seeing more people at intersections asking for change than I ever have before. And these people are not your typical homeless. These people, some of these people have fresh clothing and it can't be a scam or a racket with the the number of people I've seen and people of all races out out doing this uh in a well kind of rural going into a small city area i saw an older 50s 60s 
white man and his dog standing at a street corner with a sign need needs help. And people were rolling down their windows and giving him money. Uh, but I see it on five or six street corners a day. So something is not right in our economy. Well, I think there's some, I think there's some uh, speculation that we're going to go through another housing uh, crisis again. I've heard some rumblings uh, about that. I mean, obviously inflation's a problem um, in, in, in the inflation rates a lot higher than what they're telling us. Um, the unemployment rate being down such as it is, is kind of a, um, it's kind of an albatross to the, to the whole situation that we're in, because I think as you alluded to, a lot of people just aren't working anymore. So the, you know, the, the whole system of reporting that, um, is, is flawed. Um, people just aren't looking, um, Things like the gross domestic product is, is, you know, you start looking at some of those other indicators, you know, we're clearly in a recession. I think there was, you know, you know, recession is two negative quarter, you know, two quarters of negative growth in a row. And we've had that and we're likely going to have it hardcore to the point of maybe up to 2% annualized out. So what does all that mean? You know, if, you know, people are on a benefit or maybe the benefit expires, but they're trying, they just quit more and more people aren't working. You're probably going to see this new clientele of homeless people out there um, that are trying to make a go of it. However, they can make a go of it. Uh, there's, you know, what, what's going to be their work? I mean, are they going to work at a restaurant? Uh, they're going to work, they're going to work at two restaurant jobs. Are they going to work, you know, stocking shelves or in a freezer or are they going to hang out at the corner and still get their government benefit? I mean, this is a major problem, uh, that we're, you know, continuing to let a segment of the society go, uh, under and non-employed under skilled, um, it doesn't take a whole lot for someone to lose <coughs> their skills. Um, you know, you don't have to be off. What I'm trying to say is you don't have to be off work for a long period of time to lose your employment skills or to have them diminish. Yeah. And that's what's happening right now. No doubt about that. Yeah. I, I definitely feel, I don't care what, you know, they're saying on TV or what the official definition of recession is. I, I feel we are in recession, period, point blank. No, we uh, are. Yeah, I agree with that. I, yeah. And, you know, the root of it, you can blame on a lot of things. But the, the overextension of the COVID lockdowns had a lot to do with it. Uh, now the, uh, the, what do they call it, moratorium, on the mortgages and the rent is gone and people uh, are going to the store and they're making decisions. Well, do I eat or do I pay my rent? And they're falling behind and I'm hurt. I'm hearing that people uh, are having trouble with their car payments. Their cars are starting to get repossessed and uh, things like that because they're like, well, shit, I can't afford to put gas in it. 
do I fill up my tank or do I pay the car payment? Uh, or do mess. I put food on the table or do I pay my car payment? And yeah, you're right. That is going to end up translating into the housing market. Uh, for a long time, last few years, uh, it was a seller's market, they called it. Homes were being sold for incredibly high prices, uh, double more than what they would normally be worth. And now people have these big mortgages. How are they going to keep paying it? You know, if they have to go to the store and the price goes up every time you walk through the door. I mean, the price of gas is coming down, but that's because of negative impacts. Like people are losing their cars to the banks. Well, there's a good, there's a, yeah, exactly. And there's a good site on the internet that provides a lot of free uh, economic analysis that is kind of uh, above and beyond what you might get. uh, And that's called shadowstats.com. And Hmm. they're pretty accurate. Um, Their latest economic flash from uh, yesterday says with the advance estimate of second quarter GDP scheduled for July 28th, headline financial market expectations appear to be gelling around 0.5% annualized quarterly real growth. That said, uh, Shadow Stats views an outright second quarter 2022 quarterly GDP contraction and a resulting new formal recession as the likely, likely outcomes, as suggested by the Atlanta Fed's modeling. And so from two days ago, the Atlanta Fed's highly accurate model, economic model, which mimics the Bureau of Economic Analysis ongoing GDP tabulation (laughs) process, turned negative at the end of June at the same time, at that time showing a projected annualized real quarterly GDP contraction of 1% for second quarter 2022, with subsequent estimates ranging from a low of a projected uh, negative 2.1% annualized drop to today's estimated annualized contraction of 1.6%. Now, what does all this mean? Uh, There remains only a final estimate on the 27th of July, the day before the headline second quarter GDP report is published by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So we'll have to pay attention to what the Atlanta Fed has to say on July 27th. Uh, If those numbers are um, negative, and it looks like it could be um, that it suggests that the United States economy has fallen back into a formal recession. Now, what Shadow Stats is saying is that the official numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics (coughs) is going to be able to put together something that shows an annualized quarterly growth rate of 0.5%. So, again, it's going to be a matter of how you interpret the numbers and what set of numbers do you believe? But I think at the end of the day, when you talk about what you're seeing in the streets and what you're, you're seeing with your own two eyes about people and economic conditions, that this economy is in, is in a recession. It's not, it's certainly not growing enough to support 
or or I guess it's more accurate to say it's it's certainly not growing enough as it should to bounce back from COVID. And and what we're experiencing now isn't COVID related. This is just bad economic policy. You know, to the extent that we've bounced back from the COVID lockdown policies isn't the question. The question is we've recovered from that. Why aren't we growing at three and four percent like we were under Trump? Uh, and the answer to that is bad economic policies. Yeah, it's definitely a bad economic policy and people that don't know what the hell they're doing in high levels, at high levels. Very high levels. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, maybe we'll find some time to get into the Vince McMahon thing. I do want to talk about that, but I I am looking forward to our, uh, our second session of our special here beating or defeating big government socialism by newt gingrich chapter one will kick it off big government socialism isn't working and it can't and that's exactly what some folks are trying to do to us here in the country so we'll we'll do an old-fashioned book review there um at some point down the line so stay tuned for uh you know part two of that all right man I think we've talked uh, our ears off and uh, it covered a lot of things. And uh, I hope that this book becomes required reading, at least for our candidates this election cycle. And next, uh, as always, God bless America. Pray for one another. Doc, last word to you. Thanks for the vine. This is a great book. I'm glad you're all you're enjoying it, and I hope you all will enjoy it. Um, and uh, I guess uh, go, you know, we'll we'll see what happens uh, out there in the world. So take care. All right, man. Talk to you later, brother.